You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Uh, welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with David Buss, who is a professor at University of Texas, Austin. David, I always forget whether you're you're in psychology, right, of course, but you're also in, in biology or uh, just uh, psychology? Yeah, just psychology, but I'm the head of the individual differences and evolutionary psychology uh, wing of the department, area of the department. The interdisciplinary arm, right, of course. Right, right. Yeah, and then, yeah, and we have, we have, close connections with some of the biologists in integrated biology, like, like Mike Ryan, for example. Mm -hmm. And you're also the author of a whole bunch of books that I've read over the years for more than 20 years, Evolution of Desire, Dangerous Passion, Murderer Next Door, Why Women Have Sex, co-authored. And then, of course, this most recent book called When Men Behave Badly, which I think kind of, it draws on themes that were in all of those previous books. And, and I think it's, it's targeting an audience that's interested in very contemporary things. And I think of all the evolutionary psychologists that I know, David, you are someone who is, you know, very, very much interested in kind of applications of evolutionary psychology for, you know, how we live now and, you know, how we organize society and how we think about uh, contemporary interactions. And I imagine this also brings you to the attention of a, a lot of non-academic audiences. But, you know, what Kind of why is it that you're, you're so interested in contemporary life and evolutionary biologists oftentimes spend a lot of time talking about primates and, and spend a lot of time talking about, you know, hunter gatherers and, and you talk about, you know, college kids and, and the workplace and so forth. Has that always been your interest? Well, no. So I, I guess early in my career, I fancied myself as a pure scientist who scoffed at applications and, uh, the more I got it, so, so this, my new book, When Men Behave Badly, deals with conflict between the sexes. So that's the overarching theme of the book, which of course is pervasive, goes back at least a billion years. And in the book, yeah, I do talk about other primate species and some insect species, different hunter-gatherer groups. But I guess what, what's happened is over time, and as, especially as I delve more deeply into conflict between the sexes, or sexual conflict as it's called in biology, I got more and more interested in applications uh, of this work because why shouldn't, so, so there are real problems having to do with sexual violence and the foci of the book, such as um, deception and in internet dating, intimate partner violence, stalking, especially in the aftermath of a breakup, sexual harassment in the workplace, sexual coercion, sexual assault by friends, strangers, acquaintances in fraternities, et cetera. And these are, from an evolutionary perspective, all these forms of sexual violence violate a cardinal principle of what I call the first law of mating, which is female choice, stemming from Darwin's theory of sexual selection. That is females, and I think it should be a, a universal human right, right? So we, we talk about freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of peaceable assembly, but I think freedom of sexual choice should be a universal human right and what sexual violence, all these different forms of sexual violence do is they violate freedom of sexual choice, female choice in this case. So my thought is, well, why shouldn't the science inform what we can do to reduce these problems, to reduce sexual harassment, sexual coercion, 
rape rates, intimate partner violence, stalking. And if you look at the attempts at application, they are often not informed by the science of what we know about human mating psychology, human sexual psychology. And so I, I guess over time, I've become more and more interested in using the work for beneficial effect in solving, in particular, sexual violence toward women. Right. And so the main focus of the book is really on kind of evolved sex differences, right? And when I think of the, the sexes in, in evolutionary biology, I'm drawn to this term, you know, frenemies, right? So we talk about frenemies in business strategy, and there's situations where interests are aligned and situations where interests are in conflict within pretty much any relationship. And the sexual relationship is no exception. But you also emphasize that it's it really doesn't make sense to think about sexual conflict as kind of group conflict. So it doesn't make sense to think in terms of, you know, men as groups versus women as groups. But really, these conflicts are, you know, at the kind of bilateral level for the most part. Yeah, at the individual level. That, that's right. And that's one of the, the errors that some people make in some patriarchy theorists, for example, make is they assume that men are somehow united in their interests in oppressing women as a group. And from an evolutionary perspective, of course, that can't occur. Because for starters, uh, men are in competition primarily with other men and women are in competition primarily with other women. And so there's no unity of interests uh, between among males as a group and females as a group. Of course, there are sub exceptions to that. So males can form sub coalitions within groups or against rival groups, but those are typically formed again against rival male coalitions, not against women. So sexual conflict has to be understood at an individual level where what's optimal from a male perspective and that male evolutionary perspective differs from what's optimal from a female perspective. And so there's what biologists call sexually antagonistic coevolution, which is very much analogous to predators and prey coevolution. So where for each increment in the speed of a predator that favors increments in speed and agility of prey and predators and prey are locked in these co-evolutionary arms races where the the less fleet of foot get get eaten or don't get their dinner and so starve to death and what sexually antagonistic co-evolution is it's a similar process it's directly analogous and in many ways disturbingly on point where women are the prey and males are the predators sexual predators but the the coevolution means that there will be offenses and co-evolved defenses and counter offense and counter defenses. And these sexual conflicts have been going on for since the origin of sexual reproduction itself, as I said, at least a billion years ago. So it's been going on for a long time. And this is the critical overarching theme of the book. And we have to understand how these sexual conflicts play out in different forms due to it, as you correctly uh, say, sex differences in evolved mating psychology and in evolved sexual psychology. And one of the things that has been a bit perplexing to me is that some of these sex differences have been very well documented for many years, in some cases, decades, but we're currently experiencing, and I hope it's a fringe, of what I call sex difference denialism, where somehow the males and females are regarded as uh, identical clones of each other, and, and they're not. It might make life easier if they were, but they're not. And 
what evolutionary psychology does is it provides a very precise meta theory for where you expect to see sex differences and where you expect to see similarities. Namely, you expect to see sex differences only in domains in which the sexes have recurrently faced different adaptive challenges or different adaptive problems over human evolutionary history. You expect similarity in our underlying psychology in all domains where we face similar adaptive problems. So one quick example of that in a non-mating domain, but I think illustrates the point, is that men and women have similar taste preferences. They're not identical, but we both, both sexes have uh, preferences for uh, fat and sugar, for example. But when do the taste preferences of men and women diverge? They diverge when women get pregnant and they face an adaptive problem that no man has ever faced ever. No male has ever faced, and, and they are feeding for two, but also have to avoid ingesting substances that are teratogenic or, or dangerous to the fetus. So even things like broccoli, which are, are perfectly harmless for an adult female, if they pass the placental barrier, can be harmful to the fetus. And so all of a sudden, when women get pregnant, there's what's called morning sickness or pregnancy sickness. They start finding certain foods very aversive. And it turns out the foods they find very aversive are foods that contain minute quantities of toxins or potential parasites that could be dangerous to the fetus. But the key point is that, is that it's only when the sexes face these different adaptive problems that we say, see sex differences emerge. Now, as it happens, because we are a sexually reproducing species and we differ fundamentally in our anatomy or, and physiology, we expect psychological sex differences to accompany the sex differences in anatomy and physiology. And most of these fall heavily in the mating and sexual domain. The, the only exception to that is really not an exception, that's aggression, where males have a monopoly, at least on physical violent aggression, but that also turns out to be heavily mating related. If you look at the causes of when men get violently aggressive, they're all tributary to mating. Right. When we talk about these differences, I mean, they occur in both the domain of understanding the world and also kind of motivations. In, in the first case, when people are assessing the world and trying to understand it and estimate probabilities, you highlight that there are some substantial differences between, for instance, males tend to overestimate the extent to which females might be interested in mating with them and females tend to underestimate the extent to which males might be interested in mating with them. So preferences, I mean, when we're assessing the world, there's no evolutionary reason why we would necessarily evolve towards having the most objective uh, assessments, right? If having an incorrect assessment, either being overconfident or underconfident is adaptive, then presumably we will have this distorted view of the world. So could you talk a bit about why males and females have kind of differential assessments of world empirically? Well, the overarching theoretical framework for this is what's called error management theory, which Marty Hazelton and I first developed 21 years ago, and it's been applied to different areas of research, including audition and perception and so forth. And so, but, but you're absolutely correct that, so here, here's uh, just to give one illustration. Let's say you're walking through a wooded area and there's a rustling in the leaves and there's some probability that it might be a dangerous poisonous snake 
and some probability that it's just the wind rustling the leaves or, or a little rodent that's uh, innocuous. So, well, what would be your best strategy? Well, one strategy would be if you err in one direction, that is thinking it's innocuous, then you might die getting bitten by this poisonous snake. If you, on the other hand, if you think, oh, this might be a poisonous snake, better avoid circumnavigate that area, then you live to see another day. Now, statistically, if you are incorrect in the low cost errors, that is, you think there's a snake when there really isn't 99 times out of 100, selection can still favor a perceptual or inferential bias to believing that there's a dangerous snake when in fact there's not, because the cost of being wrong in that one instance can cost you your life. And so applied to, and so that's what we call it, it's an error management bias. In applied to the sexual domain, one of the primary constraints on male reproductive success historically has been sexual access to fertile females. And so inferring sexual interest when it's not there, what, one of the things that we find is this, we call it the male sexual overperception bias. Classic case, a woman smiles at a man or incidentally brushes up against his arm. He thinks, ah, she wants me, she's interested. When in fact, she might be being just polite or friendly and so forth. And I mean, this is one of the issues that we grapple with fundamentally in social interaction is we don't know with 100% certain certainty what the underlying internal states or intentions of other people are. We have to infer them. But males who over-inferred would minimize missing out sexual opportunities. And so what we hypothesize is that the, this male sexual over-perception bias is an adaptive bias. So it results in errors, that is, sexual approaches toward women who, in fact, are not interested. And in the book, I talk about this being one of about a half a dozen causes of sexual harassment in the workplace, where some of these guys bosses literally think that the women want them when they don't. But what we find is that men who pursue a short-term mating strategy dispositionally and men who are high on narcissism, personality trait of narcissism, that is, they think they're hot when they're not, these are the men most likely to make the sexual, to commit the sexual overperception bias, which is precisely a design feature of short-term mating strategies, we argue. Men who are pursuing a long-term mating strategy, much less likely to commit that inferential bias. So from women's perspective, and this is something we found in our lab, is that women underperceived. So we had men and women inter interact with each other and we asked them afterwards, separated them, how interested are you sexually in this other person you just interacted with? And how interested do you think they are in you? And what we found is that women underperceived and it, because it was kind of an unpredicted and startling finding, all we have at this point are speculations as to why women underperceive. And I think they're reasonable, but need to be tested. So one is that women face a problem, which is unwanted sexual attention. And so one strategy of dealing with unwanted sexual attention is to literally not see it, not pick up on it. And so they may have this bias toward not picking up on signals that the man might be emitting, but another might be that men who are interested sexually actively conceal their sexual interest early on in these interactions. Because in fact, in other studies, we find that overtly sexual overtures backfire. That is, they are least likely to be successful. And so men may in fact intentionally conceal their sexual interest 
and give off long-term mating cues precisely as a strategy of obtaining short-term sexual access. So, but anyway, there's, so there are different hypotheses about why we find women underperceive sexual interest from males, but these remain to be tested. Well, I remember when I first uh, learned, I remember learned about error management theory from you, I guess it was 20 years or so ago. And this is before I had um, kind of learned data science and, and didn't think in terms of confusion matrices. And, and now, of course, this is something that I incorporate into pretty much everything that, that I teach, because when you're doing sort of classification, if you're trying to figure out what the optimal classifier is, you can't do so without understanding costs and benefits. So people have a, you know, evolved understanding of what the costs and benefits are, and this feeds into their assessment of the world. You, you talk about this in terms of the paradox of fear, right, with respect to crime and, and how people tend to have inaccurate assessments of the, the risk of being a victim of sexual violence or experiencing serious injury during sexual violence. Can you delve into that and what are the implications of that as well? Sure. Well, this is a um, fascinating feature or set of features of our, of our mating psychology. And that is that, well, one, one is that women fear rape and murder from strange males. So in our study, this is a separate study that Josh Duntley and I did of uh, what we called anti-homicidal fantasies, where we asked people, have you ever thought someone wanted to kill you? And one of the startling and unexpected findings was that a substantial number of women said, yes, I was walking down the street and this guy across the street was staring at me and it was getting dark out. Uh, and I thought he was going to drag me into the woods and rape me and then kill me. And this was like, we had something like 75, I don't remember the exact number, but an astonishing large number of these rape slash murder, anti-homicidal forms of ideation. But when you look at the conditional probabilities of if rape, then murder, based on all the evidence that we have, they're actually extremely low. I mean, one study put it at one in 10,000. So why would women have this fear of strange males, both for the rape slash murder, but also given the fact that most rapes are not committed by strangers, but are in fact are committed by people that women know? dates, acquaintances, et cetera. And, and again, there are different hypotheses to explain this effect. So like one might be that there's a mismatch between ancestral and modern environments in that strange males may have in fact been the most likely to be rapists. So uh, a small group warfare, which we know is often about women and capturing women, killing the men and capturing the women. Whereas in the modern environment, most rapes are acquaintance rapes or even spousal or boyfriend rapes. But another hypothesis is that women's fear of strange males actually could be very effective in avoiding and lowering the rates of stranger rape had women not had this fear of strange males. And so it may be very effective in the modern environment. And we know that women do engage in behavioral strategies to avoid strange males and to solicit bodyguards when strange males are present and take other kinds of tactical and evasive actions. So again, it's another example of what you were just mentioning where the perceptions of reality might not be accurate in a statistical sense, but if you add 
the costs of being wrong to the different types of errors, then it makes adaptive sense. Yeah. And I think you, you bring up this idea of, you know, the reasonable person, right? So if we're going to use a standard in law, which we call kind of the, the reasonable person standard, you know, what would what would, you know, would a reasonable person fear a particular situation? And men and women have kind of radically different subjective experiences. You know, reasonable men and reasonable women have radically different subjective experiences. Then does it really make sense to apply this same standard to both potential victims? Yeah, I, I argue that it, that it doesn't. In the case of a use the example of sexual harassment. So there are, as you know, very few laws are written to depend on the psychological state of the victim. So like, for example, mugging is a law. It doesn't matter what the psychological state of the mugging victim is. The mugging, it's the act, the crime itself, and that is the crime. But with things like uh, sexual harassment and uh, stalking, it's another example, they use the reasonable person. So would a reasonable person view this pattern of conduct to be sexually harassing? Or in the case of stalking, it requires fear. Would a reasonable person be afraid if they, they were exposed to this pattern of stalking behavior? And the problem is exactly what you mentioned, that reasonable men and reasonable women differ. In the case of sexual harassment, women see exactly the same pattern behavior as both more harassing and more upsetting than men do. So what happens to the example I use is a horrifying example of a, in my book, uh, of a Texas politician who said, if, if a woman's going to be uh, raped, she might as well just lie back and enjoy it. Well, this is like, of course, there was some blowback about this, but this is such an astonishing failure of cross-sex mind reading where, you know, men underestimate the psychological impact of these abhorrent sexual forms of sexual violence on women. So with sexual harassment, given that the sexes differ, so what if the, the judge is a reasonable man versus a reasonable woman? Or what if the jury consists of reasonable men and reasonable women? Well, how should we adjudicate this? And, and I'm, not a, I'm not a law professor or a legal scholar, and so I don't know what the answer is, but I think that one could make a case that it, there should be a reasonable woman standard, given that women are far and away the most prevalent victims of sexual harassment and sexual coercion. And the more extreme the form of sexual coercion, the more heavily women are overrepresented as victims of it and males, the perpetrators of it. So I think that this is exactly one area where, where knowledge, the scientific knowledge of sex differences can inform policy to good effect. So, so I think that that reasonable person standard needs to be questioned in these domains. Of course, there might be many domains in which reasonable men and reasonable women are perfectly in alignment, but not in the case of sexual harassment and stalking. So I want to get into this idea of, of mismatch. You know, a lot of folks that I've spoken to who have a background in evolutionary biology will, you know, highlight the extent to which the modern world differs from the environment of evolutionary adaptation. And this leads us to question some of the things that we, we believe and, and that we feel. And 
you know, when we think about the modern college environment and we think about young people, you know, moving out of the household and, and being surrounded by strangers, or even if we think about kind of a large city environment, I mean, these are radically different from the small scale societies that we spent most of our evolutionary history in. And in those small scale societies, you know, we have allies, you know, we have a lot of transparency, right, where people's behavior is, is being monitored pretty much 24 seven. You know, and then now we're thrust into this completely different environment. Uh, how well suited are we for this environment, right? When kind of kids go off to college or move to the city, are we in a, are we in a good position to really understand how to, if, if our motives and our preferences evolved in that former world, then they're, they're going to probably not be great guides to our understanding and behavior in this more modern world. Uh, I totally resonate with your point. In my book, When Men Behave Badly, I talk about a number of these sorts of mismatches. And one is precisely the one that you allude to, which is women ancestrally were surrounded by close kin. You know, we evolved in small group living where you might have encountered, you know, perhaps a couple dozen potential mates in your entire lifespan. And so you take uh, young women surrounded by close kin who function as bodyguards and deterring sexual aggression. And in the modern environment, ship them off a thousand miles away to a college or university where they have no kin around and they lose also their friendship network that they previously had in their, in their hometown. And so you strip them of their bodyguards and that makes them vulnerable to men who have very strong sexual motivations. And I mean, one of the things that we find, uh, not, not me specifically, but uh, of who the victims are, freshman women seem to be wildly overrepresented as victims of sexual assault, sexual coercion. It's that first year where they're not in, in this novel environment that they're not aware of. And then the rates go down with each successive year of college and university. So you have mismatches there. You have another mismatch, which is the ready availability of alcohol in highly concentrated forms that are relatively evolutionarily unprecedented. So there's actually a recent really cool book that I recommend called Drunk by Ted Slingerland. And, you know, he talks about the history of alcohol and there's some evidence that alcohol, intentional cultivation of alcohol goes back many thousands of years, but something like seven or nine or maybe 10 or 11, but it's, it's pretty recent, but the, the forms were very low. It's basically equivalent of beer and wine. So you don't get this uh, distillation of highly concentrated things like vodka and gin or which can be used to spike sugary drinks. You don't get that until much more recently. And so, although we may in fact have adaptations to metabolize alcohol, or most people in the population do, we don't have adaptations to deal with it in high, these high quantities. And one of the things that we know that alcohol does is it disables defenses. So physically uh, you become less adept in terms of musculature. And then also psychologically, your, your defenses are, are down your perceptions, your inferences about other people's motives and so forth. You become Alcohol basically disables a lot of the def natural defenses that women have against sexual coercion. So that would be another, and then of course, date rape drugs like rohypnol would be another example of that. So you have these, that's another mismatch is you have these evolutionarily unprecedented 
drugs which disable women's defenses. And then, of course, you have one other type of mismatch, in, and I, I alluded to this at the very beginning, where ancestrally we would have ex been exposed to just maybe a few dozen potential mates in our lifespan. Now we have thousands or millions in urban settings and in online dating formats. It really opens things up. And so this has led to what some argue is the, the prevalence of the hookup culture on college campuses, where, although I think there's another contributing factor to that, which isn't just the prevalence of mates, but is a sex ratio imbalance. So one of the things, and I, I highlight this in the book as well, that when there's a surplus of women in the mating pool, mating strategies tend to shift more towards short-term mating. And they do so because the rarer sex is the more valuable sex. And so the rarer sex, if I was, uh, as a concrete example, I was giving a talk at Texas Christian University, which is not that far from where I am in, in, in Austin. And at Texas Christian University, they had a, uh, and I believe they still have something like 60% of the undergraduates are women, 40% men. Now, this is actually a huge sex ratio imbalance. And basically what happens is these, um, the way one woman described it to me is that guys who are, who would normally be a five on the mating market are eights at Texas Christian University. And you talk to guys who went to TCU as an undergraduate and they get this glazed look in their eyes as they fondly remember that there was this one time in their lives, this one era where they experienced high mate value and precedent sexual access to women that they've never experienced subsequently. And, and that's what you have now. And it's becoming more and more extreme. And I think that, that, that it's women are being, are overrepresented among college undergraduates to some degree also, depending on profession in, in graduate school and other areas, the exceptions being things like engineering, uh, where may, there's still a male prevalence in that. But like in the social sciences, you know, in the PhD program, like it tends to be like 70% women and 30% and men. And so, so these sex ratio imbalances, I don't know how I got off on this. You have to remind me of our <laughs> point of departure, but the sex ratio imbalances, I think, creates another uh, another mismatch. So those those kind of sex ratios, so in, in small-scale societies, what, what kind of sex ratios do we see? I mean, there's clearly a higher mortality rate among males due to violence. Yeah, that's the thing is, it depends on which society you're talking about. So yeah, you go, you go to the Yanomamo or Gabusi or any small-scale society where there's uh, high levels of intergroup warfare then you're going to have higher male mortality, which is going to produce a surplus of women, which is possibly why in many of those cultures you see a polygynous mating system. So, I mean, with respect to this, this mismatch, I mean, aren't the boys also equally unprepared for this environment, right? You know, the kinds of mating opportunities, forcible mating opportunities that are available and, you know, to those who are violently inclined in cities and campuses. I mean, this is presumably something that was only available through warfare and in small scale societies, right? Because, you know, in a highly closely monitored community, this sort of behavior would have been, you know, unthinkable, right? Except in, in, in warfare. So, so they're, they're equally unprepared for this novel environment, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would, that's a good point. I don't delve into that in the book, but I would, I guess off the top of my head say that they, they still have the same mating and sexual motivations. And as you mentioned, the opportunities to conceal 
these crimes of sexual violence are more numerous. So, so an extreme example is at fraternity parties. So go to a fraternity party, they spike the punch, and then they, they have back rooms or basements where they take women. And so the sexual violence can be committed in, in relative anonymity or where there, where there are no witnesses. And I mean, this is something that sexual predators try to do is they try to not only disarm the female defenses, they try to divest them of their bodyguards, their friends, separate them from their friends or whatever other bodyguards might be around. So I guess the other thing that I do talk about in the book a bit is about males not being prepared is that is another mismatch is pornography, which has become widely available and widely consumed online. And Pornography, of course, is highly unrealistic and typically unrealistic and not representative of sexual interactions between most consenting adults. So in pornography, the typical thing is uh, male and female come into the same room and sex starts happening within seconds of the encounter. No context, no emotional involvement, no, no psychological investment, basically total strangers. Well, that, of course, are uh, become... They're, they're porn actors and actresses, and so they're sexual acrobats. And so I think this toys with our evolved male evolved psychology in a couple of ways. One is giving, hijacking our sexual mechanisms into believing that there are dozens and dozens of sexually willing women who require no investment whatsoever. And then also the expectations of what they see in the pornography get translated into a real life interaction, then women feel pressured to somehow live up to these sexual acrobatics that the porn actresses engage in, which, which just creates another form of sexual conflict. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, the biggest mismatch seems to concern jealousy, right? So paternity uncertainty was something that, you know, we've had to live with for millions of years, right? Regardless, you know, going back to our predecessors even. But it seems in today's world, scientifically, right, this is this is not an issue. I mean, there may be some kind of resource consequences of infidelity, but far less than there would have been in the past, right? So this is not something, that, presumably, that you can easily change, right? This is so deeply rooted, the, the jealousy, that even if there are resource opportunities available to women that didn't exist before and paternity certainty opportunities that didn't exist before, it's, it's going to be pretty difficult to eliminate jealousy and the violent consequences of it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, that's why I titled that book that I wrote on jealousy, The Dangerous Passion, you know, because I think it's an emotion that is very difficult to quell. And I use this as a thought experiment, which is like, you know, let, let's say that, I mean, one of the functions of jealousy is that it evolved to preserve paternity uh, certainty in the invest in on the part of the investing male but let's say you go to a man and he's just gotten married so he has his newlywed blushing bride and you say to him like like look your sexual jealousy evolved due to this paternity uncertainty problem and it, it did well in solving that problem but now it's irrelevant in the modern environment is it your wife is taking birth control and in the off chance that she got pregnant, you could always do a DNA test. So uh, you do this thought experiment and then you say to the man, the groom, you say, now, would you be comfortable with other men having sex with your wife right now? Now, if you do that thought experiment, like how many men would say, oh, well, I realize that that ancient evolved function is no longer relevant. Yeah, please proceed. How many men would do that? 
So I think it's, yeah, it's one of these things that's, again, as you mentioned, it's a mismatch between ancestral and modern conditions. Now, one of the interesting domains in which this comes up is uh, polyamory. There's a lot of talk about polyamory these days, and we don't know if there are more people engaging in this polyamorous lifestyle or whether it's just being talked about more and, and less in the shadows than it formerly was. But one of the things that they grapple with is precisely that sexual jealousy. That is, it's a difficult, it's like the monster figure in the polyamory world. And so they develop different strategies of dealing with this. And I know one, one case, one example of this polyamorous couple that I know, husband and wife, she's bisexual. And so, but they agree they can have sex with other people. But interestingly, he gets really upset when she has sex with other men. And so he's always trying to pressure her, don't have sex with other men, just have sex with women. Whereas she says that when I ask her, you know, do you get, if your husband has sex with another woman, does that bother you? And she says, no, not at all. But one time she saw him walking down the street hand in hand with a former girlfriend and that triggered her jealous rage, you know, so it was that, that emotional involvement or the intimacy that really tripped her jealousy, whereas the sexual aspects tripped his jealousy. And so, you know, now, now, of course, in the case of polyamory, you have these other, in, in the male sexual brain, you have these dueling adaptations. One is sexual jealousy, but the other is desire for sexual variety. And so in polyamory, you, males are trying to maximize their, or fulfill their desire for sexual variety. And one of the prices they pay is that other men have sex with their partner. Now, of course, my guess is that, and, and this is yet to be determined empirically, but those who gravitate toward the polyamorous lifestyle might be those who are low in jealousy to start with, or lower than average in jealousy to start with, because there are these individual differences. And then also polyamory tends to be, although not exclusively, tends to be initiated by the male and the woman goes along with it because she doesn't want to lose the male. So sometimes there might be a mate value discrepancy where the, the guy says, look, this is, I'm a high mate value guy. I'm, I feel entitled to multiple partners. I, I love you and want to keep you and everything, but you have to engage in this lifestyle with me. So, so even in these, uh, you know, you could say, I don't know how modern they are, but modern polyamorous lifestyles, you still see uh, our evolved sexual psychology and sex differences therein playing out. Mm -hmm. Now you quote a couple times in the book that I, I forget who is, there's no individual who said this, but it's a common theme among evolutionary biologists that, you know, males were, were really, you know, created as part of a, a breeding experiment by, uh -huh. by women. Yeah. Right. And you know, this is, in, this is consistent with the female choice story, but it has profound implications. So in most species you have this kind of male, reproductive uh, skew. And this, this drives a yeah. lot of different things. I know, I remember I saw this OkCupid data, which showed that when males are evaluating females, they tend to evaluate them along a uh, kind of a, almost a normal curve centered around, you know, five out of 10. But when females are evaluating men, the average is like a three. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> only like 10, 10%, 10 of the, the, the men yeah. in the database were considered above, above average. Yeah, it's actually 20%, but it's the, the, the point is correct. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, it's one of the fascinating things and it, it's not widely known, but I talk about this in my new book that on average men find women to be more attractive than women find men. 
And we know that a lot of mating historically that is over evolutionary time has been hypergamous, that is women marrying, marrying up in SES. And polygynous mating system allows that to some degree. And we know that women have evolved mate preferences for men who are high in status. And so you have these online dating formats, women going after the top 20% of the guys. And so then there are 80% of the guys who experience few or, or no mating opportunities. And this is a big problem because that top 20% of the males who receive all the female sexual attention are typically unwilling to commit to a long-term mating relationship. And what would have been, I mean, in a polygynous mating system, hypergamy, women marrying up, the man would have several wives, co-wives, and it would be all perfectly fine. But in the modern environment, we have a legally enforced monogamy. And so men cope with this by not getting married. Now, of course, these are generalizations for which there are large exceptions, but, but it is a fascinating finding that women just don't find men as attractive as men find them. But in, in a monogamous society, this is going to create quite a bit of tension, right? Where you have pair bonding, then there's going to be asymmetric dissatisfaction, right? So, you know, you, you, you talk about, I mean, you have, when you use these numbers, like eight out of 10, six out of 10, I mean, this is sort of a, a sortative mating, right? Where presumably the tens are supposed to match with the tens and twos are supposed to match with, with the twos. But in, in a world where the distributions are different than this kind of mate quality mismatch that you talk about, this seems to be something that that's unavoidable. There's no way to get around it. And so it's going to create all sorts of tensions and problems. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's one of the themes that runs throughout my book is the problem of mate value discrepancies, because even if a, a couple is initially matched on mate value, so the eighths mate with the eights, mate value changes over time. It's not a static entity. It changes with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You know, it can, it can go up, you can gain status, you can uh, acquire mate value, or, or you can go down become injured in ill health, get fired from your job. This is something that we saw in the pandemic, by the way, is a lot of people losing their jobs. And given that women impart select men based on their resource acquisition abilities, a guy who, you know, women are very forgiving if the job loss is temporary, but a month after month after month, if it drags on, it creates sources of dissatisfaction. And that may be one reason why we saw the rates of intimate partner violence spike during the pandemic. Estimates are they went up by about 20%. I mean, it's not the only reason job loss isn't the only reason, but we know, and Daly and Wilson were the first to highlight this, is that men who lack the benefits to provide a woman so if to stay in a relationship sometimes result to a cost infliction strategy of which intimate partner violence is one. And that's why in the book, I devote a whole chapter to intimate partner violence and propose the disturbing hypothesis that it, it actually is functional. And, and I go into some depth about the underlying psychology by which it works. You know, for example, lowering the woman's perceived mate value so that she thinks she's very lucky to be with the guy or cutting off her relations with her friends and her family so she doesn't have those bodyguards there it's all diabolical in the ways in which these violent men hijack women's psychology, but it works, you know, in the sense of statistically keeping women in relationships when it's not really in their best interest to be in those relationships. So some people would argue that the, 
kind of decline of of marriage as as an institution or a long-lasting institution and the kind of delaying of the onset of marriage and the, and the lengthening of this dating period combined with the uh you know ease of dating through online dating some people argue that this is kind of reintroducing more skew into the the, the dating market than they had before and and this gives rise to you know these incels and i learned this term manosphere, which was, was in your book. I'd never heard this before. So there's a, a whole bunch of disgruntled males out there that is this, is this something new? I mean, we, we see it in, you know, every society where there's a gender skew or, you know, in societies where there's polygamy, is this something new? This, this kind of incel slash manosphere movement, what is it? Does it reflect anything or is it, is it just a... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how, how new it is, you know, in the sense that the reproductive skew that you mentioned has been prevalent. We know this from the molecular genetic data that, you know, the Genghis Khan effect where, where something like 16 million men in and around the former Mongolian Empire have the chromosomal signature of one guy and probably Genghis Khan. And similar molecular genetic sweeps have been found in other areas of like, you know, with the Vikings and, and uh, Scandinavia, Ireland and, and the UK to some degree. So we know that this reproductive skew has been there, been around for a long time. With the incel, I don't know if that's just, you know, modern computer technology allows people with similar plates to form groups and um, mobilize their efforts so, so I don't know whether it's just a new name or a new phenomenon. I, I suspect it's an old phenomenon just simply because in every generation going back as far as we can tell, most of the females reproduce and a much smaller number of the males reproduce. So there's always been that reproductive skew at the incel. I can't remember if we define this for your viewers as uh, involuntarily celibate. And there is a classic case of this out in Isla Vista near Santa Barbara, California, where this guy was an incel and he left these uh, journals behind. Uh, he said, today is the day where I settled these disputes. Since I hit puberty, I've been sexually attracted to women, but they have absolutely no interest in me. And they, they sleep with these other guys that they call them chads. And this just infuriated him year after year of being involuntarily celibate and went out and killed, I don't know, can't remember the details, but something like uh, shot 13 and killed six, both males and females, because he was enraged at the males who got sexual access to the females. And he was enraged at the women who denied him that sexual access. So in, in your book, you know, you talk about intimate partner violence, you, you talk about rape, and I think these things are different. And historically, when you look at this idea of female choice, it's hard to argue that, that females have had a whole lot of choice for most of, of our history, right? I mean, marital relationships were usually chosen by, by parents or by, you know, by the community. And oftentimes people were married off at pubescence or prepubescence, you know, certainly all of the kings and queens of England and France and Spain, you know, they, they, they pretty much were engaged in these games of thrones where they would be married off by their parents for different dynastic purposes. But, the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't violence that was involved. So, you know, to what extent when we talk about female choice, are we talking about nonviolence or are we talking about you know, allowing people to express their preferences. 
uh, I guess the way, uh, well, a couple of things. So, so one is that you're absolutely correct that arranged marriages or, or marriages uh, made by the parents or kin were far more prevalent and it's still prevalent in some cultures. The most extreme one is the Tiwi tribe in Northern Australia, where the, the girls literally get married off at birth. As soon as they're born, they're promised to a future husband and they don't go live with them right away, but they, when they hit puberty, they do. And so obviously in those cases, there would be no female choice. However, even in cultures where there's a arranged marriage, women often exercise choice. They might marry someone who their parents arranged for them to marry, but have sex with someone that they really want to have sex with. They might elope with a man they love rather than the one their parents arrange. They try to manipulate or influence their parents in their choices. So, and parents often don't want their son or daughter to be miserable in marriage. And so even in arranged marriage cultures, there's some latitude veering, of course, some latitude for female choice. But I think this is part of the um, co-evolutionary arms race or one of the co-evolutionary arms races is that there's always this tension between women wanting to preserve female choice and men and other interested parties wanting to circumvent that. And so if we get back to this idea of the, the, the experiment where, for, where females are. Yeah. By the, by the way, I'll tell, I'll tell you a story about that. You mentioned that you interviewed Sarah Hurdy is because I emailed her because I first heard that from her. And so I emailed her as I was quoting it in the book and I wanted to make sure that I got my source correct. And she said, in fact, it wasn't her, but rather her mentor, who was Irv DeVore at Harvard, who used to say that in those words or similar sorts of words. And so, so she attributes that quote to Irv DeVore, but has used it. And I, and I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of truth to it. Which is fascinating when you think about it, that men are one long breeding experiment run by women, which means that a lot of the bad stuff we have, a lot of the nasty stuff we have is in some sense, a product of female choice. And in what probably, what might be a, a very controversial part of my book is I make the argument that the creation of uh, what's called patriarchy is in part due to precisely that. That is, if one component of what's called patriarchy, although it's one of these words that has a million different definitions, is male control of resources. So, but if it is the case, and we know this is, that women prefer to mate with males with resources and they dump males who don't have resources. You see this, by the way, in modern rap lyrics, if you listen carefully to modern, like uh, Kanye West and, and Jamie Foxx's gold there. But so women prefer to mate and have sex with guys with resources. So over time, this has created motivational mechanisms, motivational adaptations in men to claw their way up the status hierarchy to gain access to the resources that make them attractive to women. And we know that men are more monomaniacal about doing this. I mean, they're willing to sell their grandmother, you know, sacrifice their family life, you know, whatever to claw their way up these uh, status hierarchies. And men have not placed an analogous selection pressure on women in their mate selections. And so the fact that men can, can in the modern, in most modern environments do control the resources is in part due to female mate preferences. And so now you could say now, so not only do males control the resources, now you're blaming women for the fact that they do. But of course, it's not a matter of blame, but it's a matter of identifying 
the coevolution of female preferences and male strategies of mate attraction. And I think that a, a count has to be part of the causal picture. It's not the complete account, but it has to be part of the causal picture. The reason why I'm concerned is that, you know, this idea of preference, it seems rather, I don't know, anthropomorphic, right? When we say, for instance, that a female spider, you know, prefers X or a female horse prefers X. And then, of course, you know, when you study biology, then you start to question, you know, this idea of human preferences. Because if we look at sexual selection, right, if the idea is, well, I want to select someone who is going to give me more grandchildren, if violence is a successful strategy in, in some way, and having a violent mate means I'm going to have, you know, violent sons who will be successful, then doesn't this throw into a bit of confusion, this whole idea of, of preference, right? In other words, I prefer someone who coerces me into doing something I don't want to do, right? I mean, it, that doesn't really make sense. Well, well, I don't know. I see your point, but I would push back a bit on the initial claims. So I think it's very easy to demonstrate in non-human species that different sexually reproducing species do have preferences. And, and biologists use that term all, all, all the time. So like the bowerbirds, for example, females have a choice and different males can you know, construct these different bowers with different elements in them and, and visual, attractive visual objects. Females go in, they inspect one, they inspect another, and then they, they make choice. So I think it's, it's not anthropomorphic to call that female choice or female preference, in this case, operationalized behaviorally. So I don't have a problem with that. And, and I don't think most biologists do who study non-human species do. But your, your other point about, about violence is, I don't even know quite how to phrase this, but, but that it is the case that males who overcome female resistance adaptation. So females have part of preference is resistance. So preference for some males, but also resistance to other males. That is, they, they don't want to mate with that, you know, the 80% of the, the incels. But it is the case that males who are able to overcome that resistance, that female resistance, will be more sexually successful. And the overcoming the female resistance could be due to honest courtship, providing benefits. It could be due to deception. It could be due to force. And this raises the issue that I talk about in some length in the book of whether, very controversially, whether men have rape adaptations. And I end up arguing that they don't, although it, it, it's, a hot, it's, a reason, it's not an unreasonable hypothesis that they might. And I go into different arguments about that and examine some specific rape adaptation hypotheses. So the one example is what's called the mate deprivation hypothesis, where the idea is that men who can't attract women through normal means of courtship and attraction or, or deception and seduction, they resort to violent strategy of force, of rape, of sexual assault. So the mate deprivation hypothesis, but actual tests of the mate deprivation hypothesis show that it doesn't really work. So it is the case that among convicted rapists, they do tend to come from lower socioeconomic groups. But I think that that's a bias. And so you have, I mean, the modern phenomena, modern uh, names that have splashed in the news over the last couple of years, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Jeffrey Epstein. These are not, you know, loser males in the sense of that these are males who are powerful, who have resources, plenty, but they were able to get away with their sexual assaults 
in part because in the case, in some cases like Bill Cosby, in the case of uh, evolutionary model, modern drugs that disabled the defenses of the females, but also in part because they had the resources to force their, some of their victims into financial settlements or non-disclosure agreements, or were able to hire high-priced lawyers that most men can't even afford, but who enable them to get away with being basically serial sexual predators. And there's also experimental evidence that men who are more, like in college, men who are more sexually successful are more likely to result to coercion and force or threat of force as a strategy, not typically the first strategy, but a strategy. And so there's actually a, a fair amount of evidence against the mate deprivation hypothesis, which is, which is one of the ones that had, that has been, um, advanced. It's not an unreasonable hypothesis. And of course there are some mate deprived men who do resort to rape, but as a general hypothesis that doesn't seem to be supported. So from an evolutionary perspective, the, the question is, are there specific rape adaptations in males? And what I argue is that rape is that the answer is no, there's, there's no evidence that there are specific rape adaptations in males, but that rape cannot be understood without understanding a multiple features of male evolved sexual psychology, you know, starting with, uh, sexual attention, attentional adhesion to attractive women, a reward circuit in the nucleus accumbens of our brains that give men a sense of pleasure when watching attractive women, the male sexual overperception bias, desire for sexual variety, which we know is more powerful in males than in females, and the male proclivity to use force in a variety of contexts to get what they want to achieve their goals, whether it be robbing someone of their money or sexually assaulting someone. But that use of aggression, it's not a rape specific adaptation. It's the strategy that males use in a variety of contexts. So, so anyway, that, that's what I, I don't know if that quite answers your question or raises more questions than it an, uh, answers. No, it, it certainly adds complexity to it. And so you've spent a lot of your time fighting the naturalistic fallacy, right? I mean, it seems that you spend an enormous amount of time trying to convince the reader that talking about instincts, talking about proclivities and propensities, talking about the evolutionary rationale or the functionality of, of different psychological characteristics does, does not imply that these things are in some way desirable. And it, it seems like beating a dead horse, but I guess you can never do it too much, right? Why do you think there, there is this, this sort of naturalistic fallacy that you have to continually fight against? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And, and I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's so pervasive and so prevalent that I almost think that somehow our brains are wired to think that way. But I mean, one example I use in the book to kind of illustrate why it's not correct is if let's say you're a cancer researcher, no one says, well, you're a cancer researcher and we've identified some natural causes of cancer. Therefore we're, we're in favor of cancer and want to promote it and spread it. I mean, it would be absurd, right? But somehow when you get to humans and you get to, especially some of the nastier elements of human nature, people do make that, commit that fallacy. And part of what I, yeah, I do go to great lengths in the book to try to dispel it as I've had in some of my other publications, but I think it's especially important to dispel it for this topic, 
uh, of sexual conflict and sexual violence against women. And part of the part of the way is one way in which I try to do this is to to illustrate that in fact we have adaptations that can counter it. So, for example, we have adaptations for status and reputation, and for maintaining our status and reputation, and for guarding against slips and slides and catastrophic falls from positions of power and status. And so these can be leveraged to do things like reduce rates of sexual violence. And, and so norms change, laws change, and people are responsive to these. And so the fact is that even things like, I mean, Pinker, Pinker wrote a whole book on that called The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which he argued that, that different forms of violence have in fact declined over different time intervals. And I know there's a controversy about that, but it is the case that things like marital rape, it, laws against marital rape are, are only about 30 years old or so. And so you have now lo laws against something that was a crime that was uh, committed very frequently, but there were no laws against it. Same with stalking. Stalking laws, I think, came in in the early 1990s. Men could stalk women with impunity without suffering any consequences at all. And so I think that things like laws and social norms can be changed and that we have evolved proclivities to be responsive to costs and benefits and social reputation. So just because something is evolved doesn't mean we have to indulge it. Just as a concrete example is one that you, I'm sure you're very familiar with, but is uh, eating preferences. We have evolved preferences for fat and sugar, but Let's say we also have evolved preferences to stay healthy or to get physically fit. And so we can sometimes say, uh, override our taste preferences and not eat, you know, a, a quart of ice cream or a tray of brownies because we have, um, another goal that suggests we want to inhibit those proclivities. And so evolved does not mean inevitable involved, evolved does not mean morally good, you know, et cetera. So avoid the naturalistic fallacy. Well, and I think this was the most optimistic message of your book towards the end. Well, maybe we can change this breeding experiment, right? Change the rules of the, of the breeding experiment and alter the rules of, of status acquisition and figure out a way to shape our societal preferences so that the, the characteristics of the most desirable men are ones that are as far away from this dark triad that you talk about as possible. Do you think this is a, a realistic possibility? How, how plastic are these preferences? Can we change them in a generation? Yeah, well, I, I think not, not in a generation. So as you know, evolution is a slow process. And so although it's a change can occur a lot more rapidly than most people thought. So you can get changes in a few generations of thresholds for engaging in the behavior. But I think that a more effective strategy in the short term will be not to try to change preferences, because I'm not even sure how you would go about doing that, but rather to change their expression and behavior. So for example, I think it would be very difficult. Well, it's an open question. So take the male sexual overperception bias. Okay, can educating men and women about the fact that men tend to over-infer sexual interest when it's not there, can that alter men's sexual overperception bias? Will they commit fewer errors of inference when they are educated about that bias. And I think that, that it's possible that they might, although maybe difficult. So 
I'll give you one anecdote about that, which I probably shouldn't reveal, but I'll, but I'll reveal this is a long, long time ago when I was a much younger professor, but I was uh, giving a lecture in an undergraduate class. And I was talking about the sexual overperception bias and a woman in the class, as I was talking about it, it was like her eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger. She was like, she lit up like a light bulb. And so it turned out after class, she stayed after class to want to and talk to me. And she said that this was the, the reason that she and her boyfriend broke up. And the reason was she, this was a woman, she was attractive. She was very friendly. She was like dispositionally smiley. And so she and her boyfriend would go to parties or go out to a bar and guys would just be constantly bombarding her, hitting up on her because they were inferring that she was interested because she was friendly and smiling and so forth. So, so, so here I was, I just lectured on the sexual overperception bias. And she tells me this story and I think she's coming on to me. So it was very difficult even for me to, you know, override it. Now, of course, then, you know, I realize afterwards, though, that's like totally absurd. But so I think it's an open question how much you can change these things. I think one generation is not going to be enough. But what you can do is you can change things like laws and social norms. And you can educate men and women about these sex differences. I think that's one of the biggest problems is that people use their own psychology, in this case, their own sexual psychology, to infer the sexual psychology of the other sex. And we're kind of stuck in the interiors of our own mind. And if we use our own psychology to make those inferences, they're going to be off. So, but educating people about, well, we know scientifically that there are these fundamental sex differences in our sexual psychology, I think that education offers an optimistic opportunity for ameliorating some of these um, more um, darker angels of our na nature. Uh, Steve Pinger calls them better angels of our nature, and, and we want to suppress the darker demons of our nature. Right, and you also mentioned that when it comes to education, educating people as to how to protect themselves, educating women about how to protect themselves is something that we shouldn't shy away from fear that it, it you know, might mislead. We, we need to give women the power to protect themselves and to understand, you know, the threats and where they might come from. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, I mean, I devote a whole chapter to women's defenses precisely for that purpose, uh, which goes through about a dozen or so defenses against sexual coercion and also talks about the scientific evidence that we have about which ones are effective and which ones are not. So I hope people read that chapter of the book, especially. I think that's, that's absolutely critical. David, I enjoyed the book. It really does build on a lot of the previous work. If you like this book, I highly encourage you to go back and check out some of the other books. Evolution of Desire, of course, is a classic. It's, it's been around, I guess, 25, 25 years, 20 years now. Also, Dangerous Passion, all about jealousy. It's not a, not a how-to. It's a it's a it's a really uh, you know great book, and the murder next door, which is really delves deeply into those demons of our our worst nature. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate you joining me. Well, thank you, Greg. It's been great chatting with you and great catching up after all these years. Okay, we'll see you soon. Okay, take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.